August 15, 2021. Summer on the Mount. Week 6. Stress and Adrenaline. Luke 12, 13 says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's really abrupt. Kind of out of left field. We're not given any context for what's happening here. It just kind of happens out of the blue. Jesus and his disciples are walking along and all of a sudden a man in the crowd says, Teacher, come on. Tell my brother to shape up and to share the inheritance with me. We don't know what the inheritance is. We can assume that somebody must have died and left this estate to, the, the, to these brothers. And But we don't know what the, the situation is. We don't know what the complexity is. Of course, as often happens, when there's a death in the family, it reveals, it draws to the surface the stresses that are already there under the surface, kind of hiding and waiting. And so that's what's happening here. There's an inheritance to be had, and brothers are fighting over it, as unfortunately happens more than you might think. And there's friction, there's unmet expectations, there's an uncertain future, and wherever that happens, there's stress. One survey found out this year that 84% of us in 2021 have experienced what they call prolonged stress. There's the, the kind of episodic stress that happens when you're stressed about a certain thing that's happening or stressed about uh, stress for this week or for this day, but prolonged stress is when it just kind of lingers and gets stretched out. And in a year like we've had, there's a lot of reasons why that is. But that prolonged stress makes for a pretty sour life. The prolonged stress or, or unresolved tension is what makes for a great book. It's what keeps you turning pages, what keeps you reading on to the next chapter late into the night or over a vacation or on a weekend or at work when you're supposed to be doing something else. That unresolved tension is what makes a show binge-worthy, that you get to the end of the episode, well, I got to find out what happens, and you watch the next episode and you binge the whole season in one weekend, and then the season, the season ends on a cliffhanger, and you're left to be tortured for months until the next season comes out. Uh, it's what makes for a great movie. It's what makes live sports so interesting, just not knowing how it's going to go, what's, what's going to be the end result of the game. Years ago, I had a friend that we'd always talk about the Sabres and Bills together, and one Sunday morning, he came into church, and there, the Sabres had played the night before. They're in a playoff push at that point, having a great season, and as soon as he walked in, I said, don't tell me the score of the game. I didn't watch it last night. I recorded it, and I've got an afternoon clear. I'm going to go sit in my favorite chair and watch the game, so just don't tell me what happened in the game last night. He said, don't bother. They got blown out last night. <laughs> Come on, man, you had one job. So I, I tried my best. I thought, well, I'm going to watch the game anyway. And I put it on, and it just, it robbed all the joy out of it because I, I watched the other team start to score and skipped ahead to the ending. They end up making the playoffs that year. So it was a great year, but the, the joy of that game was robbed for me because he took the tension away. The same tension that makes for a good book, makes for a good movie or show or makes live sports interesting is unbearable in your life that same kind of tension becomes a real source of stress for many of us. And, and this next part of the Sermon on the Mount, we've been walking through our series, The Summer on the Mount, looking at the core of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 8. There are parts of this teaching from the Sermon on the Mount that appear in other parts of the Gospels. So in, in Mark, Luke, or John, sometimes they'll take one of these parts of the teaching and, and apply it in a different way or in a different context, apart from this whole section of teaching we call the Sermon on the Mount, and the section of the Sermon on the Mount we're going to look at today is one of these sections that appears in Luke's gospel in response to the stressed out man. They hear this man, whatever else is going on in his life, when he approaches Jesus and abruptly interrupts Jesus saying, tell my brother to straighten up, tell my brother what to do. You notice he doesn't tell Jesus, you know, here's the facts, here's the inheritance, here's what my brother has done, here's what I think he should be doing. What do you think, Jesus? 
He says, tell my brother what to do. He's kind of inviting and asking Jesus to peer pressure his brother with him. And he's just marinating in adrenaline. He is soaking in stress. Just like a lot of us have been. And so this next part of the Sermon on the Mount is spoken in, in direct response to this man, to the stressed out person, to the person who's been marinating in stress. And this is what Jesus says in Luke 12, beginning of verse 14. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in, in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink, eat, drink, and be merry. So Jesus says, you're trying to, don't bring me in the middle of this situation. Who made me an arbiter? Who made me the, the person who's to settle this dispute between you? And rather than even address the question, he just launches into a, a parable, as is typical of Jesus. And he launches into this story about a man who has, uh, when the harvest has come in, he's got a bumper crop, way more than he anticipated. And right off the bat, this seems like an odd story to tell to this particular person, because over here, you've got a guy who has unmet and unfulfilled expectations. He, he expected something from the inheritance and has not received it. And over here, Jesus is telling him a story about a man who planted a crop, had expectations about the crop, what the crop would be, had barns ready for it, and the, 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 the harvest is actually far beyond anything he's ever had before, way better than he ever expected. And it seems like kind of a kind of a rude story for Jesus to be telling this man who's got bad news to tell him a story about somebody who's got really, really good news. In fact, if I, if I were to tell you today that I had good news and bad news for you, which would you, just think for a moment, which would you want me to tell you first? If I said I've got good news and bad news, which one do you want first? If you're like most people, most people, 75% of us want to get the bad news first. Just get it out of the way. Don't, don't mince words with me. Don't sugarcoat it. Give me the bad news first. Yet when we're in the position of sharing good news and bad news with somebody, 70% of us choose to share the good news first. We do it the opposite. And, but that unresolved tension is, just kind of gobbles us up. It just eats us alive. When we know that bad news is coming, we just want to get it over with. Just, just tell it to me straight. 90% of terminal patients in the hospital don't want the, the medicine, don't want the, the diagnosis to be sugarcoated. Just tell me like straight so I can plan and, and plan accordingly and put a plan in place. Just shoot straight with me, doc. And yet, so often, when we're in the position of sharing this news, we kind of dance around it, and there's been a lot of evidence that shows that the anticipation of something bad happening, in a lot of ways, is harder on us than the bad thing itself. When a company says, layoffs are coming in the next four months, and we'll I'll let you know sometime three or four months down the road, that's actually harder than the layoffs themselves. That is harder on morale. That weighs on people far more than the layoffs themselves. And so that kind of unresolved stress is what just kind of chews us up. And actually, I think what Jesus is doing here in the story, it looks like he's, this, this parable he's telling has nothing to do with what the man's request is, but he's telling a parable about stress. He's telling a parable about stress. And there's the bad news kind of stress, the, the bad news of you were expecting this kind of inheritance and it's not coming. You know, there's, there's bad news that's come, there's a diagnosis, there's something that is shattering your expectations. That's bad news stress. But there's also good news stress. And this, the man in the parable is dealing with good news stress. Hey, good news, there's an there's a incredible bumper crop, but your barns aren't big enough. 
And we even see this in the parable where he's thinking, what am I going to do? I don't have a place to store this stuff. What am I supposed to do with all this stuff? I don't want it to go to waste. It's a good problem, but it's still a problem. And automatically he's kicking into gear about how to solve this problem. And some of you are real problem solvers and strategic thinkers. And immediately you would you, you'd feel your juices kind of getting flowing on this kind of a problem of how to solve this. And so he, right away he dives in. He's going to tear down the barns. I'm going to build new ones. And I'm going to solve this problem. And Jesus is right here addressing both the bad news kind of stress that comes and the good news kind of stress. And maybe you're today, you've come in with bad news stress or you're coming in with good news stress. Good news stress can be you're engaged and you're planning a wedding and that's wonderful, but it's also stressful or you have a newborn and that's wonderful and exciting, but they rob you of all your precious sleep and, and all sorts of other things and they spit up all over your clothes. When, my, when our kids were little, one time I remember sticking my hand in my pocket on a Sunday morning while preaching and I had a pacifier in my pocket. And I thought, yep, that's, that's about right. That's about where we're at. Or, you know, there's, there's a promotion at work and you've got new responsibilities and you feel that pressure of the new responsibilities. There is bad news stress and there is good news stress. And so Jesus is telling the story to bring stress to the surface and ask the, make us ask the question, how do you deal with stress? And what's stressing you out today? And then Jesus abruptly interrupts his very own parable in verse 20 when it says, but God said to him, God says to the man building barns, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you, and then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Well, spoiler alert, this thing got dark really quick. No wonder why this story's never been picked up by the good people at VeggieTales. All of a sudden, the guy, poor guy's building barns and drops dead in his field. Which raises three questions. Did he die because of greed? Is this an issue where, where God strikes him dead because of his greed? You know, we, we learned last week how Jesus says you can't serve both God and money and money is an idol that puts its claws in you and you've got to break free of that idolatry. Is that what's happening here? Is, is this because you know, Christians are to, be, are to own things but not be owned by them? Is that what's happening? Did, did he die because of his greed? Second question is, did he die for building bigger barns? Does Jesus hate barns? If he hates barns, how does he feel about sheds? I hope he doesn't hate garages. Uh, what does he think about man caves and she sheds? I don't know. Uh, does he have a, is he a little bit sensitive because of being born in a barn? Is this a sore subject for him? Uh, or is this a matter of the fact that this man is storing things instead of sharing them. Is that some of the tension that's here? The third question is, what in the world does this have to do with the inheritance? This all gets kicked off with the guy who says, tell my brother to share his inheritance with me. And now Jesus is telling about a parable about a man who has a huge crop, is tearing down his barns, is building new ones, and suddenly he dies. It feels like we've gone far afield from where we started with. But here's the thing. The answer to those first two questions, did he die? Did God kill him because of his greed? Did God kill him for being, building, building bigger barns? The answer is an emphatic no. In fact, the parable doesn't say that God killed him at all. In, in the NIV, it says, uh, your life will be demanded of you. And that's in the passive tone. In other translations in the original language imply not that God is doing this to him. It's not a punishment. It's just a matter of fact. And he's a fool because he doesn't realize that he's in the final moments of his life and he's spending the final hours and day of his life stressing out about Barnes, saying, tomorrow I'll be happy. Tomorrow this will all be over. Tomorrow I can put up my feet, eat, drink, and be merry. And God says, you fool. This is it. This was the last day of your life, and you missed it. 
here's where we see that this is actually, I think, a parable for grown-ups. I've seen this definition of adulthood. I think we've got this to put up on the screen, where a, gr- a grown-up is a person who's, uh, an adult is someone who's fully grown, and an adult is also a person who says, things will settle down after this week over and over and over for the rest of your life. And the man in the parable is one of these people who says, this is one more project, one more harvest. I just got to tear down these barns, build new ones, and then, he even says in the, in the verse, then I'll be able to put my feet up, then I'll be able to rest, then I'll be able to eat, drink, and be merry, and then things will settle down. Just, I just got to get through this harvest. Just, the one more, just one more job, just one more barn, just one more day and week. And this is the trap. Uh, this, this tendency that adults and many of us have of saying, I, you know, I'll be happy when I get married, or I'll be happy when I have kids, or I'll be happy when the kids can finally tie their shoes, or when the kids can feed themselves, or when the kids go off to school, or when the kids graduate, or when the kids are married and independent on their own, or when the kids get me grandkids, or when the grandkids are settled, and we just continue to punt off happiness and contentment for some inevitable, for some unattainable, distant date in the future. It's like we, we look at the calendar and see that there's one date. Once I get past that date in the calendar, that's when I'll be happy. That's when I'll be able to let my guard down. That's when things will really kick into high gear with me. I just got to get past that date. And how many of us have said at one point or another, I just, I just have this thing on Friday. Once I get through that, then things will settle down. All year long, we say, well, I just, you know, once summer comes, then things will settle down in the summertime. And then summer comes, and we say, well, you know, summer's so crazy around here. We're trying to pack so much into June, July, and August. Once September comes, then we settle into a new routine. Then things will settle down in September. Well, September, the school year's here, and we've got all this stuff going, and we're settling into the new routines. Maybe I'll see you in November. Well, then November, Thanksgiving, and Christmas are just right around the corner, and we just continue to push back the date of when happiness will come to some date off in the future. And that's what the man is doing here. Jesus is saying here that the man in the parable is one of these people who says, I just got to get through this one last project. I'll be happy when I'll be able to relax after that last barn is built and I can put all the crop away. And he's implying that the man who comes to him asking to, for Jesus to settle this dispute about the inheritance, that he's also a man who's somehow tied his happiness to somehow receiving this inheritance, and also implying that most likely there's going to be another destination for that man, after, even if he does receive his share or the whole inheritance. And maybe you have a little bit of this going on too. How many times do you catch yourself saying, well, I just, this is just a busy week. Next, next week, things will get better. This has just been a busy year. Then things will settle down. Then we'll have time for it. The implication that this man is one of these people who says, I know, honey, we've been talking about taking that trip for years, but next year, I promise, next year we'll go. I know I said I'd come to your game, but this is just a busy week. Next week, I'll come to the game. And on and on and on, over and over again. Until one day you wake up and you hear the voice say, you fool, you missed it. And Luke's gospel, on the heels of this interaction with the man over the inheritance and on the heels of this parable, Jesus launches into this portion of the Sermon on the Mount when he says in verse 22, then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they don't sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? 
And in verse 31, he says, but seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. And Jesus, to the stressed out man, to the man who is marinating in adrenaline and soaking in stress over this dispute over the inheritance, says, you know what, I wouldn't worry about it. Look at the ravens. God provides the ravens who eat your trash. God provides for them and they are perfectly content. How much more valuable are you than ravens? You're so stressed out about so many things. I wouldn't worry about it. Who of you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? Nobody's done it yet. You won't be able to do it either. So I wouldn't worry about it. And when we put this all together, he's, he's talking about falling for the trap of pushing off our happiness, delaying happiness, thinking that somehow there's some magical date in the future when we'll finally be able to let our guard, guard down, when we'll finally be able to relax. And he says, don't fall for the trap. This has been readily evident in, in the Olympics. We just completed the Olympics last weekend. Well, I didn't finish the Olympics. Maybe you did, but I didn't. And uh, th- this is evidence every time there's Olympic athletes standing on the podium. You see this, uh, a great example of this is Michaela Maroney, an Olympic athlete from 2012, who received the silver medal. She finished one-tenth of a point between the, behind the Romanian athlete who got the gold. And if you've seen this clip, they place the silver medal around her, around her neck and they give her the flowers and she's very polite in that moment. And as soon as they turn away, she goes, and just about that long, just a fleeting moment of this, what they call the unimpressed face of, and then it's over. And it went viral, and even the President of the United States at that time posed with her at the White House making that, that face, and, and that's what she's most known for, rather than being an Olympic athlete, being the person who made that face. And it is incredibly relatable. There's been groups that have, that have quantified how happy gold, silver, and bronze medal winners are on the podium. That They've looked at, it, it's been tested by many other people that the silver medalist is always the least happy person on the podium at the Olympics. That the gold medalist, of course, they're, they're thrilled. They got the gold. How much better can you do? The bronze medalist is happy to be on the podium. The silver medalist is thinking, oh, so close to gold. So close to gold. And there's a group that has measured this, looking at the different muscles of the face and how happy they are around the mouth and the eyes. And they score bronze medalists. They looked at a number of different Olympics and the pictures of them on the podium and said that the bronze medalist scores a 7.1 out of 10, which is pretty happy on the scale. 7.1 out of 10, that's pretty doggone happy. The silver medalist scores a 4.8 out of 10 which on this scale is pretty miserable for being on the podium at the Olympics. And consistently, this is consistent over time, that silver medalists consistently are pretty miserable. In fact, there was a long-term study done of Olympic athletes, and they looked at the life expectancy of athletes to see if there's a difference between the gold medalists and the bronze medalists and the silver medalists. And they found that, that gold medalists and bronze medalists have about the same life expectancy. But silver medalists live two and a half to four years shorter than bronze medal finishers. That they're literally dying younger than the bronze medal finishers because of the discontentment, because of that face, because of the disappointment of being so close to gold and not quite getting it. Now, this is not to make fun of them. We, I think one of the reasons why that, that image went viral is because we can all relate. We all know how that feels. We all know that disappointment of being so close to something and yet falling short. And, and so we can relate to that. Should every silver medalist be thrilled to be on the podium and not to have gotten first place? No, of course that's understandable. Should, should the farmer let the crops just sit out in the field and go to rot? No, that's wasteful. Why would that be the case? But there's always going to be something else. 
If you win the gold medal, there's, with, but within moments of stepping down from the podium, there's likely to be somebody with a microphone in your face saying, you know, you were really close to getting the Olympic record. How does that feel? Or asking you, hey, good, congratulations on winning the gold medal. Are you going to come back in four years to defend your championship? Or if, if there's another crop, they're going to be, you're, you know, if you, you haul that, hot, uh, that crop into your, your barns, you tear down the barns, and you build bigger ones, and you store those away and think, man, I'm set for life now. But... But if I have another crop like this next year, then how much even more comfortable could I be? Or then my kids could be set, and maybe their kids. And, and there's this ongoing, the line just keeps moving. We just keep moving the line a little bit further. There's always something else. There's always another goal to attain. And Jesus says, watch out. It's a trap. There will always be something else. There will always be another line to chase. And only you can move that line. He says, I wouldn't worry about it. I wouldn't worry about it. So Jesus is saying that, he's not saying that you shouldn't have money in the bank. He's not saying that you shouldn't have safety plans and contingency plans. He's, he's not saying that he hates barns or sheds or anything like that. Jesus is not saying that you should live every day as if it's your last day. If we each lived every day as if it was our last day, no one would ever mow the lawn. No one would ever pick up after their dog. No one would ever empty the, the litter box. And that would make for a pretty terrible society. But he is saying that there's another way. He's saying that when we live our lives as if we'll be happy when we're falling for a trap, that believing I'll be happy when leads brothers to let an inheritance drive a wedge between their relationship, between the two of them. He says, believing I'll be happy when causes a farmer to spend the prime of his life just building barn after barn, bringing in harvest after harvest, and never getting to actually live his life. Believing I'll be happy when causes a silver medalist in the Olympics to look absolutely miserable at the pinnacle of their athletic career when they should be happy. It causes them to look sour and cynical. And believing I'll be happy when can cause a person to live their whole life, living day after day, week after week, month after month, month, decade after decade until they wake up one day and say, I blew it. I lost it. What was I? I kept saying I'd be happy when I kept thinking just this goal, just this attainment, just this one more thing. And I missed it. I missed my own life. Jesus says, don't fall for the trap. And he wraps it up in Matthew 6, 33 and 34 saying, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. And maybe some of you just need to hear verse 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. When we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, it puts a whole lot of things in perspective. And Jesus says, I, I know you're stressed. I know you're anxious. I know there's a lot on your mind. I know there's a lot on your plate. I know, some, I know the things that have not gone according to plan and you're disappointed about. I know the things that are going really well and are keeping you really busy. I wouldn't worry about it. I want to ask you three questions here as we wrap up. And the first is, how much pressure do you feel? If there could be the good pressure, there could be the bad pressure. Is there, how much stress do you feel around your shoulders these days? Uh, it could be that you're firmly in that group of the 84% of us. You're in good company with the 84% of us this year who have felt some prolonged stress. 
Is there anybody in your life saying, you know, you seem a little, like your spirit's a little heavy these days. You're a little bit crankier than normal. You're a little irritable or you just look tired. Listen to that. Take stock, like, just recognize it. How, how, how much weight are you carrying around in your heart and soul? How much stress are you carrying around? And the second question is, how many times do you find yourself saying, I just need to get through this week, just this week, just this sale, just this event, just let me get past Friday and then things will settle down. If anybody happened to nudge you during this time, it may just be that the Lord is trying to speak to you this morning. But if, if you've been pushing that off and you find yourself in this endless loop on the treadmill, punting off happiness to some distant date in the future, then may I just invite you to act today as if it's tomorrow. If you've been delaying contentment and happiness and there's anything on your, in your life you've been saying, we'll get to that eventually, we'll get to that eventually. We, there's so many things we say, I'll get to that tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes because we're living in the tyranny of today. What if you act like today is tomorrow? See, see how that feels for a day. Third question is, can you be blunt with God about it? And have you been blunt with God about it? We began with the man who came to Jesus saying, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. And it's, he's not a really a good role model for us in a lot of ways, but he did get one thing right. He's kind of a role model for us in prayer in this way that it doesn't look like he's praying when he asks that question, but anytime you talk to Jesus about your problems, you're praying. And C.S. Lewis says that we don't pray what we want to be in us, we pray what is actually in us. Some of the best prayers are when we're just blunt and honest and tell the Lord, I'm stressed about this, I'm frustrated, this hasn't gone how I want it to go. And we just lay that honestly before him and say, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. I'm going to love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength and trust, trust this to you that you'll sort this out so that I don't have to. You do kind of wonder about that guy, don't you? You kind of wonder whatever happened with the inheritance, the brothers ever sorted it out. You know, Matthew is a tax collector. He might have been able to share some helpful advice for them. I'm sure that Judas would have loved to stick his nose in that mess. But Jesus doesn't tell us how that ends. Because we're left to sort out our own stress. I got enough stress on my own. I don't need to worry about his stress. And each day has enough trouble of its own. So I wouldn't worry about it. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. And Lord Jesus, we want to lift these concerns up to you stresses and our concerns and the, our anxious thoughts, the things that wake us up in the middle of the night and the things that we've been putting off for way too long under the illusion that someday some things will slow down. And even right now in the quietness of this moment, Lord, I'd ask for you to hear the prayers of my brothers and sisters as we just quietly in our own hearts share our brutally honest prayers with you. Thanks for caring about our stress, Lord. Thanks for providing for us. 
in ways we don't see. We want to say thank you. Help us, the people who are non-anxious, who can let our trust in you to override our trust in ourselves and let our trust in you override our worry. I pray that each of my brothers and sisters here would sleep well tonight, that they would walk not in the the burden of their stress and the tasks on their shoulders and their worrying about the future, but they'd be able to live and walk in the easy yoke as your disciple. We pray all this in your name. Amen. We're going to conclude our time by partaking of the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take a moment. The team's going to lead us in a song. If you didn't grab the elements yet on your way in, you can slip out one of these doors and grab those. And We practice open communion here at Watermark, which means you don't have to be a member of our church to participate. And so I hope you'll come to the table with us as we join our hearts together at the Lord's Supper. But let's lift our voices in song. just want to invite you, however you feel led to worship, whether that's sit or stand, just take this time to rest in this place.
We practice open communion here, as I said, which means you don't have to be a member here. All we ask is that you're trusting in Jesus and seeking after him. And you, sometimes that can feel like a burden. You don't have to have enough faith to move a mountain. Some of you just came limping in with enough, with just a mustard seed of faith. And that's enough for God. He can work with that. If you've got it all figured out, this is not the meal for you. This is the meal for the broken, the broken. This is the meal for the hopeless and for, the, for sinners. This is the meal for those who are anxious and have sleepless nights. And if you've got it all figured out, I'm really happy for you. But the rest of us need a reminder like this once in a while. Say, we, if we piled up all the good all of us have ever done, it's still dwarfed in comparison to the cross. If we piled up all the best characteristics of all of us, Jesus still stands taller. And so we gather at the table and at the foot of the cross to say, Jesus, I'm bringing you my brokenness. I'm bringing you my, my broken dreams and I'm inviting you to do something with them. I'm bringing you my, my sinfulness. I'm confessing my sin to you. I'm confessing my need to you. And, I, and if I can even say, maybe, maybe you even say, I'm not even sure if I believe yet, but I just want to want to believe. That's, I think it's enough for today. He can work with that. So we want to invite you, that on that night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread he said, this represents my body, which is broken for you. And Jesus, we bring to you our broken dreams and our broken hearts and our brokenness. Would you heal us in the broken places? Would you heal our brokenness? Would you make us whole again as we put our trust in you? It's in your name we pray. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, we pour out our hearts to you. We pray you would empty us out so we can be filled with your spirit, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would wash us clean. We know we've fallen short of the glory of God. We know we've fallen short of what you desired for us. We've fallen short of what we desire for ourselves. Fallen short of our own standards. By the power of the blood, would you make us new? We take shelter in the name of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Drink it in remembrance of him. God, I thank you for this family meal and this chance to gather together and to stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters who are on this journey with us. Would you make us new? Would you be our peace? We pray this in your strong name. Amen.